we typed up a memo and he put a memo together that he wanted all the DNA checked that were taken in that area, right? Center city type area uh, for the last four years, right? And to have it uh, tested, okay? So, welcome back to another episode of Cold Red. I'm Ray Carr, and with me always is Fitz. Today, we have a special guest with us, retired Philadelphia police homicide detective, Chuck Boyle. Chuck, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us. Well, thank you guys, and always a pleasure to see you too. That's the truth. So, hi, Chuck. I Good that. to see you. We go, we go back so far, don't we? Remember when we first met? Yes, we did. We were store detectives together. Huh? I'm not sure that position even exists anymore. Um, but um, but that was a job that we had about what maybe 12 to 15 people at the old Strawbridge and Clothier department store, full time detectives, and um, yes, yeah, uh, and we chased some pretty bad guys through those stores. Yes, yeah, amen. You know, I guess today they, they, they wouldn't even let you do it, but you know, I mean, I, I can still remember that. So, uh, hey, Chuck, I, uh, Chuck, didn't you grab him trying to put on a pair of pants over another pair of pants? Can you grab well, we won't go into that. And we won't talk about Ray trying to fit into the dress, but that's a whole other story, too. Um, uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. Right. Right. No. Right. For what it's worth, guys, this may be an edit. I lost both your screens. Can you see me? Yes. I can. I can see both, all three of you. Yep. I mean, I can see all three screens. All right. Thanks. Something I about your internet. You can see all three of us. I thought, holy cow, there's only two. Right. <laughs> well, um, so Chuck, then uh, that was in uh, 75 um, that I started at Strawbridge and Clothier. Again, a big old school department school downtown, a big old school department store in downtown Philadelphia. You came in maybe early 76. Yes. Yes. Yep. And um, and we walked the floors together, chased some uh, shoplifters, little things, big things, leather jackets, whatever. The old till tappers, people would come in, break into registers. But um, then uh, then you left a little bit before me. I left to become a police officer. But then eventually you wound up joining the Philly PD. What year was that? I joined the Philly PD in 78. 1978. Oh. Through the police academy, what was your first district, your first assignment? The, where I grew up, the 14th district, uh, Germantown. So I, I grew up in Germantown. In fact, we go back because you went to Cornell Doherty. I went to Bishop McDevitt. That's and, right. You know, Catholic League boys. And uh, so I, I, I joined in 78. Uh, and my first assignment, uh, well, I was in the 14th district, Germantown. Okay. Well, we're going to come back to all of this with Chuck, but I know Ray and I and Chuck are going to invite you. We're going to talk a little bit about what happened in Maine last week. And uh, Ray, why don't you uh, introduce us to that matter, and we'll pick up a little Q&A here and, and throw some ideas out about what went right, but certainly a lot of what went wrong. Well, last week uh, there was a tragedy. Uh, and first off, I just want to send my condolences out to all the uh, victims and the families of the victims, uh, what happened up in Maine. Um, it's something that uh, 
I don't know, uh, or I, I believe probably could have been prevented um, based upon some of the things that are coming out now, uh, but it wasn't. And um, I, I want to get, before I get into some things, Jim, let me get your, your, uh, your pinch on this. And I'll get, and both Jim and I were both on Fox and Friends. I did the morning show and Jim did the evening show with Laura Ingram. And, uh, you know, we, we gave some, some of our, uh, some of our thoughts then. And then that very next morning, early that morning, he was found uh, after we gave our, uh, after we gave our spiel in there. But uh, Jim, why don't you go ahead and, and tell me what, uh, what your thoughts are on this? Yeah, I think it was actually uh, Friday night when they announced they found his body. Uh, and right after I went off the air around 745. And I was, you know, my presentation was just, you know, he could still be alive and the police have to assume uh, and FBI, everybody else was there. They have to assume he's still alive and going to put up a firefight. But it certainly could be that he he could have taken himself out somewhere, too. I, I said I thought without wearing a mask uh, at the scene itself and the two different I think one was a bar, one was a bowling alley. He didn't wear a mask and he didn't wear a ballistic vest. And that could have been a suicide mission right there. He could have thought to uh, he was going to be killed right at the first location. He didn't. No one, no police showed up right away. No one had firearms. He just takes off, jumps in his car. Well, this is a bonus. Uh, I have a bonus shooting coming up. And I'm not trying to make light of this at all. I'm just trying to think of the voices in this guy's head. So he goes to the next location, the next venue, shoots that up. He still wasn't confronted. I'm not blaming anybody at this point. First responders, they're heading to the first scene to try to help, uh, you know, the, the, the dying and the wounded there. He goes to the second scene, shoots that up, takes off. Hey, this is bonus time. So no one, no one knew what he was trying to do. It, it probably, he went in there with suicidal ideation at the same time combined with homicidal ideation. And that's never a good mix. No one likes to hear about suicide or, 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 or that someone takes their own life for whatever reason. But boy, if you're going to do it, you really don't have to take anyone else out with you. Uh, and I mean, it doesn't get much more worse than that. So um, and then next thing you know, he's on the lamb. And uh, uh, I think he realizes was bonus time. And the question was, how well prepared was he to uh, to make this egress into the next stage of life? It, it may have been coincidental. It may have been kind of clever to take his car and leave it by a boat ramp. And, uh, does, you know, back then, did it mean he had a second car or even his motorcycle he could take off? Or did he, in fact, take off on a boat ramp, uh, well, on a boat at that ramp? And I, you don't like to compliment these guys and all, and this may have been more coincidence or by chance. But in a way, the, 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 the investigators then, all the fugitive hunters, had to kind of diffuse where they were looking for this guy on land or on sea. There's plenty of islands up there. So uh, it really made it a little more difficult uh, for him in that regard. But uh, so that's what I kind of tried to discuss on my uh, hit uh, on Laura's show on Friday night. Ray, I know you went on Friday morning and uh, Chuck, we're going to bring you in too. Let's just, we'll get our, our, our news hits out of the way here and then see, uh, and, and, and see where we can take it from that point. First of all, Jim, uh, these situations based on my experience, having participated in numerous of them as the after action uh, team, uh, usually result in either suicide by the offender or he's usually killed by the police. And I think that that's what this individual expected when he went into these, but it didn't happen for whatever reason. And they found him in a recycling plant in a, a kind of out in the yard where he had worked. So he went to a place that he was familiar with. It's not, he went down to that boat ramp and then there's a path that leads for the boat ramp 
up to that recycling plant. So he was in a place that he was comfortable with and he was familiar, familiar, familiar with. But the big point here is to me is the pre-behavior indicators that he exhibited prior to the shooting. Uh, there were numerous, and we're finding out now, there were numerous uh, calls by the police to this man's house. Uh, and because they're, they're a yellow flag state and not a red flag state, only the police can take those weapons from him to see if he was fine enough to be able to maintain the weapons. So the family was concerned with him. The employer was concerned with him. Even the military was concerned with him. They all made uh, notifications to the police, and the police just didn't. Uh, I don't know if they did their investigation. They did their due diligence, but they let this guy slip through the cracks. So it probably could have been prevented here. I really believe it could have been. It seems the one person who may have done his job in Maine completely, and we'll wait till all the facts are in, but um, I never, we never use their names on our podcast, by the way, but this Maine shooter, some point over the summer, went to a gun shop and tried to buy a silencer, and the, um, and the owner of the store said, you know, because he knew of the record check, there was some mental health history, and um, said, no, no, you don't, you're not getting a silencer. So, I mean, really, what's, what legitimate reason is there? I'm a Second Amendment guy. I believe in that. But silencer part, you know, except for very rare situations in the civilian world, I, I don't think uh, that's that's needed there. Uh, Chuck, uh, any any insight on your part? You were obviously a police officer, homicide detective for years. You may have come across something like this in your career, but just any any input at this point from what we know about this guy? Well, what I think, too, was that uh, and and. Like what you said early, like early on when they were looking for this guy, it seems like the locations that he did these shootings were because of his, is it his ex-wife, his girlfriend, and the son, that these were these were places that meant something to him. So I, I'm just wondering, did they go right to her and say, listen, uh, where would he go? Because it, it just seems like he he was familiar with the bar, he was familiar with the uh, bowling alley, it was familiar with the boat uh, launch, because I think that's where he, they said he proposed to her down uh -huh. at, the, at the boat launch. And so right away you would start looking. And then when they were going through the divorce, the judge had put a stay away order. He was also supposed to turn his guns in. The, the, the courts ruled that he had to take the, you know, his he had to turn his guns in. And I just think the whole world started, you know, like when you, you, you guys are more familiar with these guys, uh, you know, uh, the few that I've run across, it's like the world starts to close in on them, you know? And, uh, you know, uh, I remember talking to you about uh, our boy out in Colorado. He started the same way, like with the peeping Tom stuff and everything. Like they, the whole way up the, the line, this guy was showing stuff, like, you know, writing these letters to the military and what he was going to do and everything else. And, like you said, he just slipped through the cracks. But I think the investigation part, if they got to her, I mean, but it was too late then, you know, as far as to stop him. But, you know, the courts asked his, his firearms be taken. And all these places were someplace that he felt he was, you know, that were close to him uh, in, in his mind. Yeah. The mind that was talking to him in different voices, uh, Unfortunately, which is never a good sign, by the way. Yeah, yeah but you know what's funny? And I, you know, I wonder, it didn't start till about a year ago. 
when he got some hearing aids. And then once he got these hearing aids, he started hearing these voices. <laughs> I'm wondering if there's a connection. Did, you know, sometimes you get these hearing aids, and I don't have them yet. I don't. I mean, I know a few people that do have them, but uh, what you, know, you, you say? <laughs> well, like Jim, you know, you start hearing things. But I'm thinking, you know, do you pick up other people? You pick up other conversations or frequencies? Is that possible? I don't know. But that's that's a question for another day, I guess. You know, just to kind of wrap this up here, and I uh, I always take a lot of notes when I'm doing these TV hits. And uh, and by the way, I did say the other night, I managed to get in. Uh, uh, Pete uh, was in for Laura Ingram, and he was asking a lot of questions, but I managed to get in that uh, his the shooter's pre-offense behavior may yeah. determine where they would find him at some point. And I gave a little list of uh, internet searches and places he frequented, worked or lived, and of course, materials and supplies he was buying. And here it turns out they did find them uh, at a body, his body uh, at a store there, uh, or, I mean, at, a, at a business where he used to work. But just um, real quick here, I'm, I'm friendly with some psychologists, at least one of them worked for the LAPD, um, Malloy, Mohandy, Noel, and Hoffman. Yeah. I know it was mm -hmm. uh, Chris Mohandy, uh, and Brad, I think you've run across them over yep. the years. Yep. Um, yep. But they came out a few years ago, and I assigned this uh, article to my uh, students at Penn West when I'm teaching threat assessment. And it's for it's for threat assessment, but how to look at some of these vi potentially violent offenders. And they came up with like a five-point check five checklist. I think it's really interesting. And I think you'll see the shooter in Maine probably covered at least four of them. And the first one is pseudo-commando. And that is he assumes the appearance and behavior and a desire for revenge and a liberation and obliteration of others. Camo pants, cutout gloves, weapons, uh, you know, items like that. Now, this guy was an, an Army reservist. You think he would have got his yayas out that way, but I, I still think we have this person also living that kind of lifestyle. Number two is warrior mentality. He's motivated by a psychological fantasy to kill unarmed civilians. Well, that's exactly what this guy did in two different locations. Number three, close and often secret association with both practical and symbolic weapons and paraphernalia. Well, he's trying to get the silencer for some of his his uh, his uh, his uh, his weaponry there. So no uh, no surprise in that regard. Um, number four seeks to be like or even surpass other historical or or fictional um, type of these these types of attacks. And who knows if that wasn't his pr primary object too objective. And lastly, he's seeing himself as an agent or soldier to advance a belief system or cause. Now, we don't know what that is yet with this guy, if he had a belief system or cause besides these uh, these voices in his head. So I throw those out there and I just for us to discuss or maybe wrap this up. But if you're part of our audience listening to this, uh, feel free to you know research that article. Uh, it's called Identity Concepts and Threat Assessment. And uh, you may know someone like this. You may have a buddy, a coworker, whatever. And if he fits a few of these categories, um, call the police, get the authorities involved, and let's hope they would take it to the next level and uh, get this guy the mandatory treatment uh, and the weapons off the out of his possession and go from there. So, Jim, that one thing, that fifth one you talked about, uh, where uh, can 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 you say that one again? That fifth one, that last one you mentioned. Yeah, sure. Seeing seeing oneself as an agent or soldier to advance a belief system or cause. All right. You know, here's the thing with him. And, and a lot of people thought 
initially he was a spree shooter uh, because it was a, a high degree of anxiety ongoing and he went from spot to spot. I, I didn't see it as that. I saw as though he was more mission oriented, that he was looking for something or someone. And that could have been, as Chuck said earlier, that could have been his ex-girlfriend, ex-wife that he proposed to there. Maybe she saw some of the uh, irregularities with his behavior and said, whoa, 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 I'm not going to I'm not going to marry this guy. I'm breaking this off. And that just put him over the edge. That's the whammy to him. It just put him over the edge. And he said, hey, look, I got nothing to lose. I'm taking her out and I'm I'm going out with her. But he didn't find her because apparently, and I'll bet you, Chuck, that that bowling alley and that restaurant bar were two of the places that they went to. It's not a big tip. They did say that. And they said that he had proposed to her at the boat launch. Yeah. Uh, And then he had a son and the courts. The, the judge had issued a stay away order. He had to stay away from her and the son and that he had to turn his weapons in. And I think he was, was he an instructor too? So, I mean, it was, you know, they said he was yeah. like a, some kind of instructor, but uh, like, you know, this wasn't probably the first time that somebody saw it. It's like, you know, the thing that you hear now, if you see, you know, when you ride the trains or something, if you see something, say something, and people are always afraid that, like, oh, am, am I, you know, uh, I didn't want to say anything because I don't want to alarm people. But, you know, and, but I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sure the people that were knew him well probably aren't surprised about what happened. I mean, to the degree that it happened, I'm sure they're surprised. But, you know, uh, I'm sure they're not surprised about uh, his outcome and stuff. Yeah, but I, I don't think he was a firearms instructor. He might have been a self-proclaimed firearms instructor. Well, because, yes. Yeah, the the military said he was not an instructor with us. Right. So who is he instructing? Unless he's just self-proclaimed, you know what I mean? So, yeah, exactly, exactly. That was so. And that's the whole pseudo-commando uh, ide- right. ideology that he may be uh, possessing right. there. So, Right. So we we can move on, but everyone out there, you know, the the, the next shooter is out there, Ray. We've done this before, yeah. and um, listening to us, listening to other shows, you know, think twice, don't do it that way. But uh, and and the bottom line, I still want to see the Nashville manifesto from the yeah, Nashville shooting. And this guy wrote at least a one suicide letter, if not more. I like yeah. to see what he's written. The public has a right to see this. Let us know what these people are thinking before they take undertake these kind of actions and it'll give us just a little bit more of a chance to either recognize them beforehand or get the hell out of dodge when we know something's about to go down i agree i agree well let's get into you chuck you know you're the reason why we're here today that's right we're so happy to have you too chuck i mean i'm happy to be with you two guys that's for sure well we don't get someone like of of your caliber too often chuck and and by by all means you were you were the best of the best as far as i'm concerned wasn't well, many guys better than you. But the one question I have is... Hey, right. He, he was he was taught very well as a store detective by his senior detective in Strawbridge and Clothier. That's where it all started. Chuck, tell him, say, look, Jim, I forgot more than you'll ever know. Let him know that. Chuck. Yeah, that, that's uh, probably true. But, Chuck, tell us, walk us through your career. I mean, how did you get involved? How did you, why did you want to become a cop? What, what, what attracted you to law enforcement? We all have our reasons. So... My parents were both born in Ireland, came over. They were immigrants, right? My mother came 42. My dad came 47. They got married here in 52. I was born in 53. Grew up like in uh, 
uh, you know, an Irish Catholic neighborhood. It was Irish Catholic, Jewish, uh, Italian neighborhood. And uh, my dad was a waiter at uh, a fast or a Linton's, which was like a, a diner open 24 hours. And the police used to come in and, they, you know, on Sundays they would give my dad a ride home and whatever. And I remember a couple incidences where the police were, you know, inside a house or something. Everybody's outside. You're looking. It was always they knew something that you didn't know. And it was always piqued my interest, you know, like, uh, you know, like what's going on. So uh, I guess, you know, I went to I went to Temple. So city school. I wouldn't say I was the greatest, you know, student in the world. I actually went there to play play ball and blew my knee out. So then I kind of like lost what, you know, like when I joined the police department, it was like a duck takes the water. I just found something that I really loved. And, uh, and, and, you know, I just, you know, I feel like in the end I did help people. Uh, it was just, you know how like we, we were like, when we joined, when I joined the police department, it was no different than I was in high school with my buddies who were on the football team. We were all like a group, right? And you know, uh, we 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 lived and died for each other. Uh, and it was, you know, like I hear this stuff that you know is, uh, I don't remember guys that were like, a, you know, that that. Uh, I wouldn't say everybody was great, but I, I don't remember guys that would, you know, being like crazy or, or brutal or whatever. I think, you know, most of the guys I work with were, were hardworking family guys, you know, when uh, we wanted to do a good job. And uh, I went to the 14th district, my old neighborhood. And what was funny is like, you know, if you went to chase somebody, I, I ran the same way they used to, you know, they were running. So it made it a little bit easier. And and I'd like to think that I was a good a good street cop. I I, I spent about four years, five years uh, in uniform, and then I went to the burglary unit, and that was plain clothes. Uh, I was lucky enough then that uh, I used to. One of my uh, assignments was that I used to walk the uh, ex mayor and police commissioner Frank Rizzo around at night, and uh, that that was uh, that was quite a treat. To uh, walk him around, hear his stories and stuff, I, you know. Uh, and then uh, uh, in the late '80s, I, I took a, in Philly. You have to take a test for detective, and mm -hmm. it's just you know it's multiple choice, hundred questions, but it's you know they, they, it's based on books and your directives and everything else. And I was uh, well uh, good enough that I passed, uh, uh, and then made detective. And my first assignment was um, North Central Detectives, which was 17th in Montgomery. So it was, you know, popular to Lehigh Avenue, 10th Street to the river, which, but, you know, how, how would you say it? Not depend They classified it as that was the ghetto, right? And uh, the, uh, I remember saying that there, there were one savings and loan, no banks in, the fourth, in that North Central Division. No banks at all, you know? mm -hmm. and uh, the uh, so there was a lot of shootings, robberies, and then that's how I ended up uh, in homicide because I had so many of these kind of jobs. I worked with an older squad 
whenever there was a, be a shooting, they used to go, I let the kid go out. So I would run out, you know. And uh, through that, I ended up in homicide. And uh, you know, went to homicide, ended up with uh, a partner, Jeff Pyrie. And then uh, we just, we worked, we worked well together, you know, and uh, had some interesting cases. I think it was really the first big DNA case in Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, uh, they brought in a geographical profile where they brought Jimmy in with, you know, where we had the, uh, the meeting down at the, at the church on Rittenhouse Square, uh, you know, uh, and uh, so, I mean, it, it, uh, it was a great career. And 2008, it was just time to go. Uh, it was, uh, you know, run, it ran its course. And then, the, you know, after that, I went to, to, to Penn, which was, uh, w was an interesting experience, you know. Like I said, you know, the only way I was getting the pen was to work there. <laughs> hey, so. hey, Chuck, by chance, did you wind up uh, ever at either MOVE confrontation? Uh, the second one, uh, I was on the, the first one, believe it or not, I was in, just graduated from the police academy. And the second one, I was on the police department, but we were held at the, at the, uh, at the district. Uh, but I mean, like, you know, uh, all of us remember that, uh, you know, remember that day. It was like, you know. Both uh, days, actually. <laughs> yeah, both. Yeah. Yeah. Jimmy Ramp. Yeah. Um, you know, so. My good fireman friend took a shotgun uh, compelled yeah. to his neck, the first one. So just real quick, Move was a, a radical back to nature group, yet they chose to live in West Philadelphia. Right. If they were in the middle of the woods somewhere, nobody would really have cared. But oh. there were abuse against kids and and theft and and warrants wanted for them. So the first confrontation was seventy eight, an officer killed, and the second one eighty five, the bomb was dropped, the whole city block burned, and it was a very difficult time in Philadelphia. Both those times, both times, and and the the first move, uh, just to give somebody a perspective, was almost like in the middle of Drexel's campus. It was a college yes. campus. It's one of these old Victorian neighborhoods and everything else. And what they did was they put a loudspeaker out there and they used to blare the, 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 the bullhorn all night long, you know, keeping the people up and everything else. And these were people that were actually supporters. of Because if you, if you remember that neighborhood, it was very liberal, um, uh, you know, uh, university type atmosphere, Penn, Drexel, uh, same neighborhood that... Uh, or uh, Ira Einhorn came from, not far the from where, the unicorn. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not far from where uh, uh, I forget her name. Holly was was found when they, they went in and they found her in the trunk and stuff. And then he split. You know, when you think of all the people, his lawyer was an oil inspector who ended up becoming our senator. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you look at all these things, you think to yourself, "Wow." You well, know? I got I to ask you about two things. I got you. Go got to put this rumor to bed. Either put it to bed for me, or tell me it's true. I had an Go uncle who was down at Central Detectives, and yeah. I think he retired in like 1980 or 1979. And he told me that they he guys were on a burglary detail. He was a detective down there, and they brought a guy and that was doing burglaries in and around that place, in around somewhere. He didn't say exactly where, and he said but he was in the cell, and it was right around this time of year. 
and it was a big Halloween party. And he said, um, first guy came in was, uh, was Santa Claus. And he told him, he said, if you don't, if you don't uh, admit to the burglaries, you know, you're not going to get any gifts for Christmas. And then he left. And then the next guy came in was a priest. And he said, confess, my son, confess. He says, confess your sins. He says, well, make sure you go to heaven, confess, confess. And the guy says, no. So then the guy came in an Easter bunny outfit and started hitting the guy with a carrot and said, confess, confess. Well, he went up to court for his prelim and he told the judge, he says, your honor, he said, they're, they're harassing me. Santa Claus came in and tried to get me to, 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 to uh, confess to this. Then uh, a priest came in and then the Easter bunny came in and the judge sent him up to Byberry, you know, for eval. Is that true? <laughs> you're, you're putting Chuck on the spot here. Ah, and Byberry was a mental institution I in Philadelphia, by the way. The, uh, the, uh, the bunny rabbit was told to retire. <laughs> and he's, he's oh, now roaming great. around the White House lawn, that's keeping great. our president in line. That's yeah, great. the bunny rabbit was told to retire. So. Uh, All right, good. I guess, I guess that's, that's that there. The other thing I want to just talk before we get into the center city rapist thing is Gary Heidnick. Did you get a chance to, to dwell on that at all or, or play in that at all? I did, but my partner, uh, Jeff Pyrie, was one of the original detectives on the job. Wow. I mean, and just so you know, Gary Heidnick was a serial killer that uh, secreted uh, some of his victims in, the, in, the, in his basement. Well, why don't you tell us about it, Chuck? Well, Gary Heidnick, it, it was in, the, uh, the uh, I guess, the 25th District which is like just above Temple University um, right. neighborhood. And uh, he was, uh, uh, you know, like the, the, the forgotten girls, you know, the, the street, he would pick them up and then he would chain them into the basement uh, and, uh, you know, uh, and torture them and everything else. He kept them locked up. And I believe it was one girl was able to get out. Uh, went to the police, the police went to the house, and uh, then they went down into the basement. They found the bodies, if, you know, where he had them chained up and everything else. And then the, the thing about it was, like, these kind of guys are not stupid. Like, and what I mean by that is that, of course, they have plenty of problems, but he was a, 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 an affluent investor. They made a big thing. Some of the detectives said they were going to ask him for financial advice because the guy was good at it, you know? And um, if I'm not mistaken, he was the last guy in Pennsylvania to be put to death. That's and correct. For That's right. That's for right. Um, but uh, uh, my partner told me, because he was, he was on that job, he said it was what they called it, first time was a house of horrors yeah you know, what, what was done to these girls and stuff like that and then right after that we had the other guy that was off of columbia avenue uh he kept them up in the ceiling in the in the, in the oh my gosh what was his name uh bernard or uh oh i can't think of his name now but he he was doing the same thing you know like nobody reports Maybe, you know, they left years ago. Nobody reports these girls missing or whatever. It's not unusual for them to move on. And uh, Marty, it'll come to me now. Marty, uh, what, uh, 
but he, I could actually look it up. Marty was, um, uh, kept them up in the ceiling. And uh, I forget, somebody, it was a smell or something, they went up to check it, and that's when they found the, uh, uh, these bodies up there. And he was another serial killer. Uh, you know, and, and the last thing, like the bosses up top, if you, if you bring up like serial killers or something like that, like they panic, you know, uh, they don't like to hear that kind of stuff because I guess it, it, uh, inflames the public. The public gets scared. Like uh, Jimmy would notice and Ray, you know, this too. Sometimes they were scared to use the press. You know what I mean? Like they, oh, we got to keep everything tight to the vest that we can't let stuff out where sometimes you say, listen, put a little bit out because somebody might know something and they'll pick up the phone and call and say, look, I don't know if this means anything, but, you know, um, you know. And, and, and Chuck, it may also protect some future victims if some information is yeah. put out that a rapist or a killer is striking in a certain geographic yeah. area, they could be a little more careful. I think most law enforcement agencies well into the 2000s have learned to use the media and, and social media, of course, in a little more of a, of a sobbing yeah, way than, than it did back in the day. Back in the day, it was like, you know, keep the cards close to the vest yeah. and yeah. Uh, and not give anything out. And, and, and I think sometimes it's set back investigations instead of, you know, bringing them forward. Um, Chuck, that guy's name was Harrison Frank Marty Graham. Marty Graham. That's it. Marty Graham. His real name is Harrison Frank, but he goes by Marty Graham. Yeah, Marty Graham. And I I still remember that. I was in North Central when Marty Graham was around. And and another guy, just like Gary Heidnick, that was doing the same thing. No, I mean, these, these poor girls that ran on the street and everything else, and they were becoming victims. But again, it's like, now, it, you know, I have two daughters. If, if one of them didn't come home at night, I'd be in a panic and, and rushing. These girls are around on the street and nobody really seems to care, you know, at times. You know. I know. Well, there was a case that brought us together. Uh, we, it was, you guys called it the Center City Rapist. Yeah. And it kind of well, brought us together. Yeah. Yeah. It brought all three of us together. What, yeah. uh, how did you get involved in that, Chuck? Well, uh, I was in what they call special investigations, SIU at the time. So what we did was uh, we handled like jobs, like the, the line squad murder happens. Like when that, when that job first happened, uh, you know, a, a call's made to, you know, it's usually by radio, they call homicide. Say so we have a job, you know, with, at such and such a location, uh, crime scene's been notified and everything else. Then we do what they call a run sheet. We fill everything out. And then they'll assign the supervisors will assign, say, like one detective is the assigned detective. He's what they call the up man. Okay. And then they might send two guys out to the scene, two guys to the hospital, two guys to, uh, you know, hang back and talk to witnesses and whatever. But in that case, they had gone out and met police, uh, a, a witness that lived up on the second floor across from Shannon's apartment and her brother. And they found the girl who went to Penn uh, named Shannon Schieber. Well, she was 23 at the time uh, in her apartment and she had been uh, strangled and uh, sexually assaulted. Uh, 
And uh, it, so at that time, they did an investigation. It really didn't go anywhere at first. So they had put like a, a whole task force around Rittenhouse Square, the city, in that, that little area there, and uh, trying to find uh, what they could. And then what happened was it went for so long that nothing was moving. So they assigned it to my partner and I uh, to take over the investigation. Uh, but uh, to say what uh, happened was the neighbor the night before said that he heard her screaming and he went to knock on the door and uh, there was no answer. Uh, they, uh, the police were called. They came. Uh, police were willing to knock the door down. That's the truth. There, there was always controversy about it. They wanted to kick the door in. But the neighbor said, look, I'm not really sure. Uh, I thought I heard something that could have come from outside. So they didn't. They left. The police did. And these two police officers, they were sued and everything else, and it was the wrong thing. They, they, they felt really bad about this, and they, you know, the, the press in that sense vilified them for it, like they should have kicked the door in. Yeah. What were they going to kick the door in? The, the, the neighbor wasn't willing to, you know, like, I'm not really sure, and everything else. So the next morning, or the next day, the brother came to uh, meet with her, and uh, he was banging on the door, and the neighbor heard it. He came out and said, uh, what's up? He says, have you seen Shannon? Uh, I've been looking for her. She was supposed to meet me. He's banging on the door. He says, oh, my God, I heard screaming last night or something. And I called the police. And with that, the brother kicked in the door. They went inside. There she is on the bed, laying across the bed uh, on her stomach. And she was uh, naked. And uh, there was blood on the wall. Uh, it was a pretty horrible scene for the, for the brother and everything else. And as it turns out, uh, you know, uh, she had been, uh, you know, manually strangled and whatever and uh, sexually assaulted. There was semen found on her. Uh, the blood on the wall turned out to be she struggled and bit him or whoever bit the person. They must have flung their thing like that with the blood and it went on the wall. We were able to get that. Now, the apartment was locked from the inside, uh, but she lived up on the second floor and there was a tree outside and, and there was a like a little porch thing. And she had sliding glass door and that's how he came up and went into the apartment. You know? and, Chuck, uh, wasn't, Chuck, wasn't that tree, didn't that have barbed wire around that tree? It did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, uh, and so that's why they think he just went over by the wall. It wasn't that far to get up. It was just good enough that he could get up and pull himself up on the uh, up onto the landing and went in. And of course, that 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 door. There was always a controversy: was the door slid open or not? And uh, when he left, because we had talked to him about it, he told us the the whole story he, about he heard the police at the door. Well, hold on. When you say he, who do you mean? Just so we're clear. Troy Grace. When he was eventually arrested. We're getting ahead here, but that's okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. But that's they, okay. Uh, yeah. And uh, so at the time, they didn't have any of that, but they did have DNA. 
And at the time, the DNA markers said that they, uh, uh, that it was probably a black male because there's only three kinds of DNA. You know, I think it's like, what is it, Caucasian, uh, uh, Asian, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, uh, American. Yeah, African American. Or, or African, anyway. Uh, yeah. yeah. So what they what they said was that the the parents came up the next day, and of course afterwards they said that there were things that were missing in her apartment, and they put a list together. So now they thought, oh, this is a burglary, okay? So and then the DNA said. Uh, that the person was African American through DNA, right? So they started to, you know, stop, you know, the burger, you know, anybody that would, was arrested in that area for burglary and everything else. And then there was a big thing about uh, doing the uh, the DNA swabbing people. You know, we had a, like a list. I think we swabbed over two thousand people uh, in the end, uh, and. Uh, Nope, never found anybody in Philadelphia, of course, that that, that matched his that DNA. Chuck, let's back up a little bit. Um, okay. The the murder of and rape of uh, Shannon Sheber, that was not the first one in this string of serial rapes, correct? It went back correct. at least uh, a number of months, if not a year. And were you involved in those early days, or just was that a different unit? No. What happened was, um, so Shannon Sheber was murdered like May 7th of, I think like 1998, okay? Mm -hmm. And we were assigned to it in September of that year, right, of, of 98. And so we were, we were going through, we typed up a memo and he put a memo together that he wanted all the DNA checked that were taken in that area, right? Center city type area uh, for the last four years, right? And to have it uh, tested, okay? So that was in December when we sent the memo in. De yeah, December. We walk into work on a January and uh, our lieutenant says, upstairs, the commissioner wants you. At the time, uh, uh, the commissioner was John Timoney from New York had come down, and he was our police commissioner. And uh, here we found out that we had four matches of DNA on sexual assaults that happened in the city of Philadelphia that weren't carried as sexual assaults. They were carried as investigations of premise. So therefore, the DNA was never tested. Oh boy! Until what is, he, Chuck, what does that mean? Investigation well, of the premise. Okay, so investigate. So a girl, I'll, I'll put you how these cases happen. Uh, one girl was had been out drinking, and when she woke up, she was in a tub and everything else, and she had been sexually assaulted, but she she doesn't remember like what happened and stuff, and but there was uh, semen there, so. The, set, the special victims person took the swabs, uh, did an investigation. The girl couldn't say anything. And then how did he get in? Your door's locked and everything else. Well, there was a small crack in her window. 
And I'm telling you, when I say small crack in her window, I meant that. And uh, so they just thought could have been a boyfriend, could have been, you know, uh, whatever. And she's just reporting it now. So instead of carrying it as a sexual assault, they carried it as an investigation of premise. And that's how they were carried, four of them. Turned out to be six of them. Uh, each one in this area of Rittenhouse Square, Pine Street, you know, it was almost like you could put like a, a square around this, this neighborhood. Uh, and uh, a lot of them like, uh, the one girl had a cat in the window. They talk about that. And Shannon Sheba was the only one that was on a second floor. It was usually on a first floor that he went in. Shannon Sheba was the only one on the first floor. She was on the second floor, the only one that went up. And she's the only one that fought, believe it or not. She was the only, only girl. That we interviewed every one of those girls later. And in each case, there was DNA. That's it, it matched right to, to the uh, the person that was uh, involved in the Shannon Sheber job. The DNA matched. And at first, it was like two. Then it was four. Then it was six. And then that's how the press labeled it the Center City, the Center City rapist. Because he, up until that point, he had done or it was nothing but rapes, sexual assaults, and the act itself was, you know. Uh, over in seconds, you know, a premature ejaculation or whatever, when he would, he would whisper things to them. You know, I've been watching you, uh, just, you know, I don't want to hurt you and all this other stuff. Like it was almost like he was treating it like it was a date or something. Uh, well, let me believe it or not, believe it or not, that's a certain type of category of rapist. Right. I know we discussed this back in the day. Go ahead, Ray. But let me ask you this. Here you are. Five months after this homicide or what they're calling a what, what they believe is a burglary uh, that turns into a homicide because there's things missing from the apartment. You get it five months later, about five months later, they bring you and Jeff in. So you and Jeff Pirate, you guys are in this. And Jeff says, we need to get the DNA samples from as many people as we can where sexual assault took place. So you get this. And now all of a sudden. You're not looking at one. You're looking at seven. What's going through your mind and Jeff's mind at this point? Oh, at this point now, we know that we have a serial rapist that is on the loose. And uh, that. And what happened was, so at the time, because uh, Jeff had actually had stopped one guy and he ended up filing a lawsuit against him. But we started interviewing each one of these girls individually. I uh, interviewed the, the special victims, detectives that talked to them, got all the case files and everything else. And what we came up with was that this person wasn't, quote, a black male. It was an Hispanic male, an Indian male. You know, somebody, he was dark-complected, could have been, a, you know, Italian or dark, a dark-complected male, very thin, very thin, soft-spoken, you know, uh, basically told the girls that he had, I've been watching you. I thought it was time we should meet. I mean, you know, th these poor girls laying there uh, uh, talking and they had already, this is the sad part. They had already reported this to the police. 
So like the one girl was up in New York. She lived up on a walk-up on the fourth floor. We went up to interview her to get a comp, and then we had a composite. And I remember they didn't want to put the composite out. Uh, remember, Jimmy? Because you had to convince them about the composites to, mm -hmm. to put yeah. out. They didn't want to put the composite out. Uh, and so, because all this stuff was kind of like new, you know, DNA, like when you think about it, I think the first big case was the O.J. Simpson case. It wasn't that long, yeah. before, you know, after this happened. And at, at first we were just getting small markers. I mean, like today they could tell you, you know, you know like breaking it down. Then I think it was one in a thousand. And, you know, and then each, you know, the numbers were going up. So uh, now we're looking at, we're not sure. We know one thing we're not looking for is a, like a black male uh, burger. We're looking for a sexual predator. And the way he went in, uh, I mean, uh, he went through the cracks in the bars, uh, you know. Uh, and I remember the one girl saying she felt him around the waist and he was very skinny and she thought he was like Spanish or whatever. Uh, uh, so, and we were kind of getting frustrated because now we asked, we put the composite out, we asked for tips and we had a tip sheet. And, you know, every day we would go and take care of, of how many tips we could go. And people were calling up. It was kind of like, it was crazy. If I remember one lady called up on a guy that was her neighbor's son down the street. And cause he didn't, she didn't, he didn't shovel her snow. She said he was the center city rapist. So we had to go down there and it was in South Philly. It was in a, uh, an Italian house. We knocked on the door. We told him we, who we were and what we were there for. The mother almost dropped dead. Right. <laughs> and they brought the kid down. He was like 18 years old. He had to be six foot seven, about 285, 290. <laughs> and I, we looked at each other and said, thank you, we're gone, right? And we walked outside and Jeff said, should we have taken his DNA? I said, Jeff, if he fit through those cracks, we definitely don't have the right guy, you know? <laughs> and and that's what was happening. We uh, There was uh, the one bartender that worked at the, for George uh, Perrier at the, at the one restaurant. He was called six different times because where he was working at, when they put the composite out, he looked at it, he was real nice and stuff like that. Good looking guy. And, and he used to call up and say he was the center city rapist. And, you know, they would hand us this tip and we'd go, we already had his DNA. So, uh, yeah, we would go, no, no, it's not him. You know, I remember boss come back, are you sure? We go, listen, we have DNA on all these jobs. It doesn't match. It's not him. But what's funny is, I shouldn't say it's fun, but they weren't sure what that meant. You know what I mean? Because they didn't do it all the time. They go, well, what do you mean it doesn't match? What well, doesn't match? It's like um, a fingerprint. It, you know, it's a very specific thing. If, 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 this, if his DNA doesn't match what we're finding, we got the wrong guy. You know, it's just it, there's no way to, you know, to, to do it any other way. You know? And, uh, then, you know, like you get tips, like we were thinking these rapes and sexual assaults took place uh, like from May to October. Then they would go dormant. 
right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't hear anything. So I remember like, you know, the, we had a meeting. So like, when did the circus come to town? When did, when did that sports teams come to town? When did this come to town? Like all these different things are going through, through our mind. Like, sure. and we're not sure what we're looking for, you know? Other than we have a composite, then we get a second composite that's a little bit different from the last girl. And so we, now we have two composites that they eventually put out. They were kind of similar, but different uh, with the hair and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, it went, it went dead, nothing, you know? I mean, we used to walk around, uh, with the tips, like if we saw somebody out that fit that, that description, you know, like what we thought we might watch them. If, uh, you know, I remember one guy was sitting at a, at a, uh, outside cafe and he was drinking a, uh, uh, a Heineken and uh, he got up and he looked good like he looked like the composite and stuff and uh, he got up and he went to the bathroom and we walked over took his beer he had gloves <laughs> put it in a paper bag wrapped it up he came out and he's like looking like the hell's my beer go right and then we followed him home and we knew what apartment he was in and everything else. We had to get his name. We submitted the DNA, it came back negative. Now I'm sure this guy, you know, if he's listening to this or he's sort of probably saying, son of a gun, that's what happened to my beer that night. You know? You a beer, Chuck. I do. Yeah. It was a Heineken too. And then uh, there were certain people that, we, you know, uh, one guy was at, uh, at Topper Salon. And he was, it's, it's really, I mean, great, like how girls felt at that time. But the girls at this topper salon, they felt this guy was kind of being creepy. So they called up and we ran right over, right? And we see the guy, good looking guy in his 20s. And, uh, you know, we used to have this uh, form with us. You know, fill out your name that, you know, you hereby submit. Uh, uh, to give us permission to take your DNA. And we'd have a swab there. They would chew it, spit it in the thing like that. We'd have all their information. They'd sign it, we'd sign it. And then we would submit it. And they would go, so with this one guy, and we should say this to all the, the ones that we did, that uh, you don't have to sign it. Uh, you can tell us to get lost, but that doesn't mean you're not a suspect. You know? and, and which I always found funny, we used to laugh at that. At the time, because of uh, the O.J. Simpson case, they used to call it uh, a person of interest. Now, <laughs> if you said yeah. that in a Philadelphia courtroom, the judge would throw you out. Person of interest, you mean the suspect, right? You know, <laughs> Yes, Your Honor, the suspect. So, uh, but this one guy, uh, we take him outside. We don't want to do it in front of girls because we don't want him to know that the girls are the ones that called up. He said, look, whatever we have information, it's... Uh, that you fit the description of this. And he lived downtown and everything else. And uh, we, he filled, we filled everything out and he agreed to do the swap. And I remember him chewing and he goes, is this legal? And <laughs> he was a lawyer. I said, you're a lawyer, you ought to know. 
but and he's spitting out. It wasn't him. But I remember he was chewing. He goes, and he's, he goes, because when we were talking to him, he goes, I'm an attorney. And I go, I, I understand that, but we're just trying to, you know, eliminate you. And when he was chewing, he goes, is this legal? You know, <laughs> and it turns out it was, you know, I mean, we weren't forcing anybody. Yeah, it was voluntary. Uh, it was voluntary. Uh, and, and that's what you, you know, I always laugh because people think we have to be so careful of, and you guys know this, you have to think like a defense attorney. What am yeah. I going to get asked? Because the last thing you want to do is mess up the case when you get the right person. That, you know, and, and watch that person walk out the door. And then the case just went dead. We never, you know, nothing. It was not. And then it was 19, 1999. Uh, it was Labor Day weekend. Uh, we were off. It was a Saturday. We get a call from our sergeant to say that there was a sexual assault down on uh, my graduate hospital. Uh, a girl was uh, in the second floor bedroom and she had been sexually assaulted. Uh, what do you think? So we went down there and, uh, the, you know, they held the scene. Uh, and the bars on this window was a big bars on the window would had all these screws into the concrete all the screws were removed the bars were taken off the window left right there and this person went in to uh the uh the house went up to the second floor bedroom and sexually assaulted this girl and she couldn't see uh and uh when he was done, he ejaculated into a pillowcase. He had tied her hands up and everything else. And he ejaculated in a pillowcase and left it on top of her. And he was gone. And we went down there that night, that morning, I mean, and we knew right then and there without DNA or anything. I remember turning to Jeffrey and said, our boy's back. Now, we hadn't had a sexual assault since the Sheba job in, uh, May of 98, and now this is August of 99. And as it turned out, the DNA matched, right? And what was crazy was, this was the girl's first day in Philadelphia. Mm. Oh, and she was going to school, university here. She had just moved in and she was in the, ha the, the house that these four girls rented on no Street. It was her first night and she spent it. The other girl was out working and she was in there by herself. Uh, and I remember, is there anybody else that's, uh, is anybody else home? This is the stuff that he was saying to her. Now, go ahead, Jimmy. I'm sorry. No, that, that's okay. This is important. Uh, but at, as, as our audience knows, uh, even the worst of serial rapists and serial murder cases, they still are local crimes. They still are local uh, state crimes. With, with some exception in national parks or politicians, whatever, FBI, other law enforcement. However, at some point, you reached out for Ray Carr, and Ray Carr reached out for me. Can you walk us through a little bit about how the FBI, even though it was Philadelphia PD jurisdiction, that was never going to change, uh, how the FBI was brought into it and what you recall our interactions being back then? What I, re what I recall was, 
that after we found out when we had the first the first four jobs that uh, you know that were linked to the Shannon Sheber job, the sexual assault, we knew we had a sexual predator. We weren't familiar with that, like you know what, but we knew that there was somebody out there like that. So we had knew that you know we asked, we were talking to somebody, you know, the FBI has profilers, they do this stuff. So we reached out to Ray to get his, you know, the expertise on what do we need to do to have you guys help us at figure out who this person is or, or you know, like to get a, a, like a profile of who we might be looking for. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and I'll tell you what, it's, it's, you know, somebody would think it, it's a laborious process. Like you have to fill a lot of stuff out, uh, a lot of information and everything else. And, mm -hmm. and what we, what we did was we submitted our DNA to the, uh, I, like I, I believe we had the DNA, but all our reports and everything else had to go to the FBI. We weren't allowed to like nitpick. You know, if you guys were going to take a look at it, we had to look, you had to look at all the file. And, and that's what we argued with some of our, you know, I'm not going to say all our bosses, but a couple of bosses that didn't want to release certain things. You know, they wanted to be protective of Shannon Sheber and her family because the family was politically connected and stuff like that. And we said, no, if they, if we're not going to, if we're not turning over the whole file, they don't want us. They won't, you know, because, I mean, they have a job to do too. So, but it, uh, it worked out in our favor, you know? You know, I remember uh, the first night coming up to homicide. I remember walking into the homicide unit and in the waiting room was Mr. And Mrs. Sheber. Yes. And, and uh, they, they, they said to me, they, you know, you introduced me to them and they said to me, uh, agent card, you have everything you need in order right. to take a look at this. And I said, you know, I said, look, I said, we're just getting involved. They just reached out to us. Uh, we're just coming up to, to talk about this and kind of go forward. But I, I told them, and, I, and I'll say it right now, that both you and Jeff were the two best that the department had to offer. And right. you guys were the best of the best there. And I let them know that. And that's true today. It'll be true tomorrow. It'll be true forever with that. I always felt, you know, I felt bad. I, I, listen, I'm a father and daughter, so I, I can't yeah. begin to put myself in their in, in their shoes and stuff like that. And especially after they find out that the department had six sexual assaults that they never, they, they listed as investigations of premise, which changed everything about how the Philadelphia Police Department handles sexual assaults, DNA, uh, I mean, just changed the whole thing. We had a great chief of detectives, uh, Joe, Joe Maxwell, the, the best John, chief. Yeah, John, John, Maxwell. John Maxwell, the best chief you could ever have. I yeah. mean, as far as, as as chief of detectives, was the best. And and he gave us nothing but all the support he could on, on that job. And you guys were very instrumental. I mean, to set up those meetings. Uh, and I remember we took that whole file down to uh, the profile unit uh, yeah. we had, at, at down in uh, uh, Quantico. And yeah. I remember the uh, in that room, there had to be 26 because somebody there told me it was the most they ever had of all the different um, 
yeah. you know, you guys, you can tell the audience all the different people that were in that room, you know, from psychological to, you know, uh, and we, we did a presentation. And uh, I remember one person saying, uh, you know, not to be a smart aleck, but uh, so what are you guys actually looking for? Because usually what happens is you do the presentation. The next day you come back and they give you a thing about uh, here's the steps that you can take that you missed. Now, which is no big, you know, that's great. That's what we were looking for. Is there something we should have been, should have been doing? But I remember they said, what exactly are you looking for? And I said, look, I said, really all we're looking for is the first seven digits of his social security number and his last name. We'll take it from there. You know, and they kind of like chuckled. But I mean, because that's where we were at that point. But I right. remember that, that the next day it wasn't ready because you guys had, it was more detailed. But we ended up getting that report sent to the chief, Chief Maxwell, and it was detailed about, you know, that the area, uh, what, what you should be looking for and everything else. And a lot of it was dead right on point, you know, but when we finally uh, ran across our boy. You know? well, I'll never forget, Chuck, that um, after Shannon's homicide, uh, we felt that, and I'm not trying to give any defense for, uh, for the eventual killer, but he, you know, that may have been a circumstantial, situational uh, environment where he, he just had to strangle her right there because the police are right at the door. And uh, I remember saying to you, because I was, of course, uh, I was learning about serial rapists, too, from some of the, uh, the senior profilers in, in our unit. And I said, you know what, I, because this guy's a power reassurance rapist, he almost sees these like dates. I said, I'll bet you the next rape he commits, and I'm always careful how I word this, but the next rape he commits, it'll still be a rape, it'll still be a, a violent felony, but he's going to be the most of a gentleman that he ever was. And Chuck, you told me you interviewed that next rapist, I think, what, a year later or so? Like you yeah, said, that Labor Day. And you right. said, yeah, he raped me and he was really a bad guy, but he was giving me clues how to better you know, lock my windows and how to have you know, other, other, other ways to keep safe from being raped again. And so he was like as much of a gentleman rapist, and I hate that term, but as much of a gentleman rapist as one could be, he tried to be afterwards. And, and it was that case that really taught me, um, even though I was, you know, I relayed that information to you, it taught yeah. me that these guys do have personality characteristics and their, their MO and their signature. MO may change a little bit, modus operandi, but their signature behavior really won't. And um, and it shows that these guys, they have ingrained in their brain how they're going to work and succeed, especially the successful ones that go four to six to 10 serial offenses. And um, and uh, a lot of them think alike. And that's what helps us better uh, project, you know, and provide a profile to future cases. So uh, so I think everyone learned a lot from this particular case, including uh, and, you know, from you. And and I was glad to be invited, by the way, um, I guess as a team, we agreed, let's do a community, uh, uh, a community meeting uh, at, at, a, at a venue about these cases when everything was still hot and heavy. And uh, we had that church in uh, Rittenhouse Square. Yes. And uh, I think what about five to 700 people showed up. Absolutely. Yes. And there were a number of speakers there. And I, I was, you know, one of them. And I know that I, I forget if it was Maxwell was a speaker, but some Philly PD people, uh, I think someone from the FBI Philadelphia office was there. 
And then I went up there and I presented the profile. And I said, let's release this thing. And I think we put most of everything out there and uh, that we thought would be, in fact, consistent with this actual rapist. I'll never forget one of the questions asked uh, by one of the women, um, Agent Fitzgerald, you know, thank you for coming um, here tonight. Um, uh, let me ask you, if, if this man, I'll take all your precautions, lock windows, double lock doors, you know, don't open doors for anyone, call the police right away. But if someone gets in my room and they're ready to rape me, what do I do? And the only response that came to me is um, do whatever it takes to physically survive. Right. And other people have said that before. And I, I'm not saying I invented that, but she just kind of nodded her head. Okay. Do what it takes to survive, to still live after the event is over. Right. And no one denies how bad a rape is and how, mm -hmm. how what it does to a, a psyche and a, and a body, but to uh, just get that. Uh, <laughs> but if you're able to live afterwards, you know, you, you've, you've accomplished your survivalistic goal. Right. And, and, and you remember that, that the, the, I mean, this was an everyday uh, thing in the press. Every day they talked about this, the center city raping. And the girls were afraid to go out at night, you know, if they went out. And, and I, I can't tell you how many calls, because we were out there at night. Uh, girl would hear a knock on the door or, you know, like the breeze with, you know, like some of those areas with the trees, it would hit their window. Third floor, call the police. Somebody's trying to break in. And everybody was there, you know. Then we had that one on a Sunday night uh, right above Boyd's, the clothing store. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, remember that girl? And it turns out she, it wasn't a sexual assault. It wasn't the Center City rapist. Uh, she, she, had, she had issues, that poor girl. But, I mean, they took it so serious that, they, you know, they called everybody in. You know, and if we got notified, we notified you guys because we were just looking for anything that would lead us to, you know, to, to someone like, you know, as I always say, when, when you start these investigations, it's like an open field and you just keep trying to narrow it, narrow it, narrow it, narrow it till it ends up pointing to somebody. You know, when you say that we have him or that person there. And in this case, you know, we, we had no suspects. Uh, we had DNA is what we had. And we had a profile of what we might be looking for. And it's funny, afterwards, a lot of those things that you guys told us about was spot on. You know? Well, and one of them was, and I want to go to the next part of the story, but with all the publicity you just mentioned, you're right, almost day in and day out, I think someone in the media tried to call him the Spider-Man rapist because he yeah. was climbing up. Yeah. And somehow we poo-pooed that, or you guys did. No, you know, Center City Rapist, let's not give him a superhero moniker. No. But uh, at some point, I remember, you know, after the consultation we had in Quantico, with all the media going on, we said, this guy, he's not stupid. He's been successful so far. He's going he's gonna to do something like join the military, take some time off, blow out of Philly for whatever reason. And um, everything goes dormant, as you say. And then I think at some point you get a phone call, a teletype. Tell us how that part of the story okay, comes so together. Have, and, and one point that you made was really big. That last, the, the last rape where the girl was just in town for that one day, which will come out later, but he did. He talked to her 
like, you know, like it was like his girlfriend. He was whispering in her ear, soft spoken and everything else. Just, you know, I'm not, I don't want to hurt you. Uh, and I mean, just a, exactly how you described it. So then what happened was uh, at uh, three of the detectives, we, we, so we had a little squad together, three of the detectives uh, from special victims joined us. Okay. Carl Latour, Sergeant, uh, was Lieutenant Tommy McDevitt. And uh, God, I can't think of her name now. She'll get mad at me. Yeah, she was uh, but Linda Pace. Linda Pace. Yeah. Uh, God bless her. And so what happened was we decided to put out a um, uh, a reach out to the you know the, the all the departments in the country. Did you have any sexual assaults where you know uh, this is what we're you know this is how it happens and everything else? And uh, and we have DNA. If you have any, so uh, somebody. Uh, it, one of the three saw this teletype about sexual assaults at uh, Fort Collins, Colorado, and that they had DNA. They pick up the phone, they call out there, and they got a series of sexual assaults, and they have DNA. And it's girls that live alone, right? Uh, person came in, you know, uh, at night, through windows, sliding glass door, you know, almost describing what our guy did, okay? And there was a series of them. Uh, and, uh, but they had DNA. So our group sent out the DNA to uh, Fort Collins to be tested, came back a hit. DNA matched uh, their their jobs out there. And I think they had at least six. And and Jimmy, you brought this up, and Ray, you said the same thing. Afterwards, so not to get ahead of ourselves, you said there were probably other jobs out there where if the girl survived and didn't say anything, wasn't right. injured, wasn't hurt, they kept their mouth shut. We know of at least four that were never reported. In, in the Philadelphia area, at least four that we know of. Absolutely. Those girls never came forward. They were just happy to be alive, right? Yeah. Uh, for whatever reason, they didn't come forward. So we, we had a DNA match. So there was a, a meeting with the Fort Collins police. And what, what happened was uh, we had a guy in Philadelphia, a Lieutenant Monahan, uh, that worked in major crimes. And he said, look, I can put a program together. We can link uh, people up by uh, people that lived here and in Fort Collins, right? And, uh, the, uh, and I can put parameters on it, like, you know, age and, and everything else. And it was agreed. And I forget how many names there were. There was... Picked about 300, Chuck. Yeah, yeah. About 300 and the, the deal was... They would, they would, anybody that was still out in Fort Collins, they would take care of. Anybody here in Philadelphia, we would take care of. So we started going around, like, you know, knocking on doors, you know, can we get your DNA and everything else? And everybody cooperated, okay? And then uh, Fort Collins, uh, 
there was one name on that list that was from here in Philadelphia down there that um, uh, caught investigators in Philly's eye. And it was uh, Troy Graves. And they kept calling out to uh, Fort Collins, did you get this guy? You know, have you gotten his DNA? Have you gotten his DNA? Turns out the guy's in the military. He's working up at a nuclear base up in Cheyenne, Wyoming, but he lives in Fort Collins, which is, you know, just a ride up the, like, I guess, go, going from Philadelphia to Harrisburg. Right. And uh, unbeknownst to us, while in the military, he was uh, broke in through a window and sexually assaulted a person on the military base. And now he's back home. And when they had all this uh, assaults in Fort Collins, his next door neighbor kept calling the police and now I think you guys ought to take a look at this guy, right? And, uh, uh, you know, he fits that description. He goes out at night and, uh, uh, you know, he wears this hat and everything else. And uh, for whatever reason, they never ran across, you know, like they would go out and knock on the door, he wouldn't answer the door. So they left. And then uh, on the one day, uh, they were able to list left a fingerprint. Uh, the, one of their crime scene people did a great job, but he found a fingerprint underneath a uh, railing in the last job that he did out there. And uh, sure enough, uh, they got a match on the fingerprint. The problem was that he had never been arrested. Okay, so there, there's no reason for his DNA to be in a system. His fingerprints weren't in the system. He was in the military, in the military records. You're not going to get his DNA or whatever, right? Or his fingerprints. They decided to uh, bring him in for questioning. And when they brought him in, they did his fingerprints. The fingerprint matched. And then that's when they got a search warrant for his DNA. They talked to his wife. He ended up getting married out there. He married a minister's daughter. Mm. And she said that he had trouble sleeping. So he would go out at night for walks, right? And of course, out on these walks, you know, uh, he always did his homework. That's one thing he did. These girls all lived alone. They didn't have, usually didn't have dogs. Uh, and uh, they, you know, boyfriends didn't stay overnight and everything else. He, I mean, he took his time, you know, it's, it's scary what, you know, yeah. uh, how we did it because he was he was meticulous about like I said, uh, and we had talked about this. The sex act was was meaningless almost as far as for him it was the stalking, the breaking in, the harder the better. I think he got his satisfaction out of that sexual satisfaction out of how the tougher the better, you know, to get in to get out and uh, you know like and I don't think he wanted to get caught. No, it wasn't no um, at all. Uh, it's just that uh, you know he he joined the military after that last. So he did the last rape, knowing he was going in the military in August of '99 in Philly, and he was in the Air Force in September of '99, and did quite well. Went to Texas for training and stuff. I sent him to a nuclear air base, Wyoming, uh, and. Uh, like when we talk to the military guys, uh, they're, they're investigators. 
that. You know, they told us about the sexual assault that they had been involved in on their base and, and stuff. And then uh, we talked to the Fort Collins police, uh, and he admitted to the jobs there. Uh, you know, once he was confronted with everything, the DNA and everything else, they sent it to us. Uh, and uh, then uh, we, we were able to go out there and, and interview him. I remember going to Jimmy and you guys asking, like, what questions should we ask? You know, how should we approach this guy? You know, uh, uh, you know, to get him to talk, not to, you know, and he did. He talked. You know, he told us everything, you know, and of course, um, the, uh, when you, when, you know, when we first found out, we went to where he lived, his ex-girlfriend and the uh, daughter. And when they were walking around, remember how they used to put that, the pictures, the wanted photo of the center city rapist, like in the banks and the storefronts. Sure. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the, the girlfriend at the time and the daughter, not his daughter. But this girl's daughter, he was living with this girl. They're walking by the bank one day. They see the photo and she goes, oh, mommy, there's Troy. Oh, boy. <laughs> and she never called the police. Never yeah. called the police. And that little girl took one look at that photo and knew it was Troy. Uh, and then uh, how did he start out? Again, it was missed. After the investigation stuff, we found a 48 where he was stopped in the other side of Broad Street. So he did everything. So say if you divide Broad Street and 14 streets, the dividing line, he did everything from that, that the teens up, like 14, 15 up, right? It was his area, but he lived around 9th Street. And he got stopped by the police one night, gave his name and everything else. He was stopped for being a peeping Tom. A peeping Tom. That's how he started out. He used to peek in windows at girls and look at the girls and stuff. How gateway, much gateway sexual offenses. Yeah, we know yeah, that. How much prior, Chuck, did he get that? that a year. A, a, a year prior maybe to Maybe not even a year before the first one. I don't even think it was a year. A couple of months. He was stopped. And uh, we didn't find that 48 because of the way it was coded. So it wasn't coded investigation or premise. There was another way they coded that 48. But when we asked for all the jobs that anybody did a ped stop, which we call the ped stop is investigation of person, we asked for all those. It wasn't in there, hmm. right? We, and because and, that's how we used to go, like we would go out and say, oh, look, this guy got stopped here. He looks good. Let's go out and get him. And like for the longest time, everything fell in his favor. And not ours. You're right. You're right. You know? that's, and, that's, yeah, that's and, what you're looking for, Chuck. Yeah. You're looking for offenders that have prior uh, arrests or stops that are engaged in those type of peeping activities and things just like that. That's yeah. what you're looking for. That's why you called for those things. Yeah. And when we talked to the girl that he lived with at the time, and and the, and the daughter, but we didn't talk to we talked to the girl. She told us, oh, yeah, you know, we, li we lived down around 9th Street. We lived in an apartment. Troy had trouble sleeping. He used to take walks at night. And that's what he did. Go he would go out and stalk these girls. You know? Now, the last job, what do you hear? This one is, this is like, whew, just scares you. So the last one, like, a lot of our concentration was in around Rittenhouse Square. 
Turns out he worked at a bank on Rittenhouse Square, right? Uh, the, right there on the north side of Rittenhouse Square is that bank he worked at. In fact, his photo was in that bank, okay. you know, like on the on the, uh, the thing. And that's where the girl saw the photo. Said, now, mommy, there's Troy, right? Hmm. So the last girl that moved, that came into Philadelphia, it was her first night in Philadelphia. She was going to college. One of her roommates that time was living in that house by herself all summer. And she was working at a restaurant on center on 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 the center on the Rittenhouse Square. Devin, I'll tell you the restaurant, Devin. And we noticed for a fact he used to follow her home at night and watch her go into that house. And he would do it, I guess, night after night, figuring out how am I going to get in? I don't know how he must have bought power tools with him. Because you had to see these screws were like this that he took out of this wall and went into the house. That's the one where, and then uh, he, when he went in there, the girl that he ended up, this girl was a blonde haired girl. Like he had certain uh, looks that he, he went for, you know, uh, usually brownish, blondish hair, a certain build and everything else. When he went in there, this girl was Asian. The girl, when he was following her home that night, he must have cut it off. She went to a friend's house and didn't go home. She was living alone. This girl was upstairs in the bedroom sleeping, knew nothing about any of this stuff. He breaks yeah. in. That's when he was saying, are we alone? Is there anybody else in the house? Because he, he got a little worried that there was somebody else there. And then when he ejaculated and put it in the pillowcase, could have taken the pillowcase with him. He had tied her hands, laid her on the bed, dropped that right on her back. And Jeff and I took that as a big FU to the Philadelphia Police Department because he knew he was leaving town, right? And, and sure enough, and I remember asking him that, you know, I said, that, that was a little, a little gift for us, wasn't it? You know, because he disappeared, you know, but he couldn't stop himself. You know, if he had left and went to Fort Collins, joined the military, never did another thing, maybe we'd have never caught him. You yeah. know, if his DNA is never taken, you know, it wasn't like he was a, a junkie or whatever. Actually, he was very easy to talk to. That's the scary part. You know, he used to write me letters. Remember, Jimmy, I told you, he wrote me letters from prison, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, and I used to respond to him. I would write back to him. Uh, just, uh, you know, but 100% sexual predator. Oh. You know, uh, yeah, the dumb ones get caught early on. They don't become serial. They get caught after their first or second offense, whatever it is. But just we're going to wind up here in a few minutes. But I just want to uh, and thank you so much for your time in this detailed uh, version of this uh, of this very difficult time in, in Philadelphia and Fort Collins history. But right. uh, from an interview's perspective. I'm, I'm sure you had a couple of little girls at this point in time and you're sitting across a desk. And I remember as a young cop, uh, you, know, you just want to jump over and strangle these guys and, 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 and pummel them. But of course you don't. And in a way you almost have to kind of act like their buddy a little bit. And it's so much grains against your system, but you have to, I know there's a good cop, bad cop thing you can do, but I'm sure you had to almost sit and it's almost like you're having a conversation with a buddy. 
But of course, that's not the case. You're trying to establish rapport and you're trying to get information out of him. Did you find that tough with guys like him to oh, yeah. uh, keep up that demeanor? I did. And I remember talking to both of you about this. Yeah. And you guys gave me this, um, uh, like a tip going out to talk to him because you want him to get to talk to you. And I remember you were saying, well, like, find out what he likes and what you did. I went out there with the cigarettes that he smoked because we ended up talking to the lieutenant who ran the, the sheriff's office out there that had him housed. And he says, oh, he smokes these cigarettes. And he said something about tasty cakes or something. We brought tasty cakes yeah. with him. We took him out across the table. We were all outside smoking. Now, at the time I smoked, my partner smoked. He smoked. We're outside smoking with him. You know, listen, Troy, we're not, you know, no, we're not mad at you. And because at the end of the day, you want him to tell you everything. Right. Everything, you know, and he did, He, you know, and it was, and, uh, and it was, I found it easier to talk. Now, of course, he's not your friend, you know, right. uh, and what we did was when we were out there, I always remember the, uh, we were talking to him, uh, his attorney, a public defender or whatever, you know, they didn't want us to, of course, talk to him. So uh, we said that um, no problem. We come out of the room uh, and she was there and she said, uh, you can't talk to him. I said, OK, no problem. We said, uh, but we're going to give our office a call and we're going to get a extradition thing. And we're going to take him back to Philadelphia. And our D.A., if you're not aware of it, is Lynn Abraham. And I remember saying this to her. She's personally going to stick the needle in his arm <laughs> when it's his death sentence. Because if, 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 so if, if you're out for his own interest, you better think twice. She said, I didn't say you couldn't talk to him. You just can't talk to him now. So I got Charlie Gallagher, chief of homicide on. There was an agreement made in over two weeks. We flew back home. We went back two weeks later with the special victims people and ourselves, uh, Jeff and I, and the DA's office and took his statement, took his statement for the Shannon Sheever murder. And they took the statements for all the sexual assaults. He confessed to all of them. And there were also, like I said, four others that we know happened, but were never reported, at least four. You know, that wasn't his first time at the rodeo, like, yeah, you're right, you know, all through that time he was active. But he only went at, in, in the spring right up to the fall because these girls didn't have air conditioning and stuff. They used to leave their windows cracked and they all lived on the first floor and they were all single and stuff. And that was just what he wanted. And he would track them down at a certain look and he would follow them. And he took his time. He took his time. Shannon Sheber was the only one that lived above the first floor and was the only one that fought him. The only yeah. one. Everybody else just, you know, what you said, Jimmy. They stayed alive. They did let what me, they needed to stay alive. Let me ask you this, Chuck. Um, one of the things, the reasons that we had that community meeting was we thought that there might be a good, uh, there might be a good chance that he may show up. Exactly. Trying to find out what we knew. Uh, did he ever show up at that uh, meeting at no. any time? No. He did not. No, he was gone at that point. No, wait, was, no, he wasn't gone at that point. He was, he was right before the last one. Did no, you ask he, him that, Chuck? 
Yeah, we did. We did. Okay. Uh, I mean, he knew he knew what we were doing, and I think that's why he left that that pillowcase for us. Yeah, you know, on the way out the door is a little like, I'll see you around. I'm gone. You know? Chuck, I remember coming that night to that uh, to that venue in Rittenhouse and parking outside. And it was a guy that looked just like him standing outside. Remember that? Yes. I remember that exactly. And yeah. I thought, bitch, that's him. And then but, he, he, I asked him a question. He took off down the stairs. Yeah, yeah I remember that. And, and if you remember, when we were leaving that, uh, that night, a, a girl came up to talk to us about it and thought that, you know, she remembered something about a guy. And uh, I mean, there were, after that, the public was so much, especially the people that, in that area that were so much more aware and we were getting like tips and stuff like that, that, uh, uh, you know, I mean, the, cause they were legitimately, you know, if your daughter was going to Penn or any right. of these schools, you had to be worried. You know? Absolutely. You know? yeah. I mean, here's a girl that graduated Duke university with three majors, three majors in three years went and it was accepted to an insurance program at the Wharton School that only 15 students are accepted every year. That's how brilliant this girl was. I know. You know? I mean, Shannon Schiebert, the homicide victim. Yeah, the homicide, yes. You know, I mean, just, you know, you know, the potential, it just breaks your heart. You know, and then these other poor girls that reported and nobody like, you know, they... They don't get a very good job, you know, no, and that's the truth. You know, they went down with it and, and uh, you know, like, and their statistics stayed down. I remember they're trying to blame a poor captain in the ninth district. He said, he didn't control it. You know, uh, right. if they had been, quote, uh, handled as that, they would have tested the DNA. They'd have linked the first two together. And then, you know, there wouldn't have been four, six, seven, eight, you know. But that's near here. You know, what are you going to do? It's all different now. Chuck, um, I'll never forget. Uh, there was a plea agreement between the Philly DA's office and the Fort Collins DA's office. And basically he would do his prison time. I think they had he had consecutive sentences for the rapes he committed in, in Colorado. So he was basically never getting out of jail. But part of that. And he, so he wouldn't have to go back to the Pennsylvania where they had a death penalty. I don't think right. Colorado had a death penalty. Then. No, they didn't. Uh, so, but part of the plea agreement, and I always remember asking you this, and you asked the DA involved, and that was to have for uh, Graves to agree to a behavioral interview with the profilers, and that was going to be me and Ray flying out there, you know, six months, a year after the case, and we thought, boy, I, I mean, you always wish these things never happened at all, but if they did, this could, guy could be a real treasure trove of. Uh, of behavioral information to just, you know, mine his brain about everything he's done, what was successful, how did he pick this victim, why did he not pick another victim? But um, but true to form, he reneged on us. And I said, yes. yeah, I know I agreed to it. And my attorney, I think the DA contacted his attorney, whoever it was at the end, and the bond, yeah, you can't make me talk. I ain't, I ain't talking to those effing profilers. So we never did get a chance to uh, do and our you know interviews with them. The, uh, what bothered me about that was the fact that uh, when he got to prison, I think that was the, the time when he thought, like, I'll never be able to do this again. 
And I think he just felt so so guilty about getting caught. Not about what he did, but getting no, caught. There. Right. He didn't want to right. talk to anybody then. You know, because now I'm in prison. I can't, you know, his wife divorced him. The girl, she was gorgeous, by the way. The, the minister's daughter, she divorced him. Like his whole world came crashing down. And I think he just got pretty bitter. And he, you know, he didn't go. I will say this. The prison he was went to in Colorado, I wouldn't want to be in it, you know. So, um, yeah. but that, but I remember that. And, and, and at the time, he was going, oh, yeah, I'll talk to them. I, I have no problem. And then all of a sudden, he changed like that, you know. Uh, I just think it did that, you know, the whole prison thing and, and getting caught and stuff just messed up, it, you know, his psyche. He became know? angry. He became yeah. angry. Like, yeah. you know, how dare they catch me, you know? Right. Exactly. Well, we, we still learned a lot on this case from a yeah. investigative perspective, Chuck, what you laid out, certainly from a behavioral perspective. Uh, we were glad to offer whatever we could. Um, you know, I was... It was nice being back in my hometown. Again, I wish it was for some other reason, but to work with Philly PD with, you know, I grew up, a bunch of my buddies were Philly cops meeting right. up with you after 20 years, uh, you know, where we didn't see each other and, uh, and learning where we both were in life. That was, that was certainly uh, a, a beneficial part of it, despite it being a, a matter of a serial rape case. Um, Ray, do you want to have any final uh, comments or questions here of, uh, no, of our just, guest? Uh, Chuck? I want to thank Chuck Boyle for joining us uh, and shedding light on an unbelievable career, Chuck. Well, thank you you guys for everything you did for Jeff and I. And I have to say something else, if you don't mind. Uh, And it kind of shook me. But the more I look at it, I remember you guys, we were talking. uh, And uh, I think, Jimmy, you were up in New York with a serial rapist, too, at at one point. I'm shocked that there there are more of these guys out there than the public ever knows. Yeah, that's true. It's just so, so scary. Like when you read this, the green something killer and and these guys are out there and it's just like, you know, it's, it's scary. It really is. It is. It's Uh, so scary. You're right. You're so right. DNA and CODIS, uh, uh, has certainly helped link these rapes over the years, but human behavior hasn't changed. And no. there's that small, minuscule percentage of men who just feel for a power and control scenario. As you said, Chuck, it wasn't really about the sex act itself. No. That may have lasted less than a minute, but the, the break-in itself, the whole experience is really a sexual encounter for these type of uh, these types of people, these types of rapists. And, uh, and they're still out there today. And um, they're getting away with it. And uh, some of them are a little smarter. We don't think it into how they're being smarter uh, than right. than uh, than leaving the evidence behind that, that their predecessors did uh, in, in in past crimes. But uh, yeah, you know, this show is about victims. This podcast is about victims knowing your environment. So please, like I said earlier, uh, to all the women out there, men too, for that matter, you know, know your immediate surroundings. You know, uh, don't answer the door for anyone. If they say they're police officers, make sure you, you know, you see the actual police car outside. Don't be, a, you know, don't fall for any of these tricks. That yeah. even, if they, even if they're not Spider-Man-like and can climb two or three stories yeah. to a side of a building, they have other ways of getting in to meet you. And, of course, now online also is how they can set this whole thing up. So uh, yeah. so be precautious there. So, uh, 
So again, uh, thanks again, Chuck Boyle, Frank, um, for joining you, us. Before you, take us. Before you take us home, Jim, let me just, I want to give a Chuck Boyle quote here. Oh. That he said, he said, uh, you know, I was asking, I said, well, what's your, what's your thoughts on this guy, Chuck? You know, when we were first talking and he said, I'll tell you what, Ray, uh, he's an unbelievable burglar, hmm. but he's a shitty rapist because he hmm. leaves his calling card wherever he goes. Yeah. And I was, that was so true what you said. And by the way, Chuck, I'm going to a Halloween party tonight, and you'll never guess what I'm dressing at. Oh, boy. An Easter Bunny. An Easter Bunny. An oh, Easter my God. The Easter Bunny. Don't carry that six-foot carrot. <laughs> and on, on that, we'll have pictures for you on the next Cold Red podcast of Ray in his <laughs> rabbit uniform. But uh, again, thanks, Chuck, for joining us. Um, be short. I have a well, so, we appreciate it. Keep listening to us and all the fans out there. Uh, subscribe to the Cold Red Podcast. Follow us on all Cold Red Podcast social media platforms and the coldredpodcast.com. We'll see you next week with not just another regular guest, but like tonight, we'll have a special guest. So um, stay safe and always be aware of your surroundings. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Chuck. Have a great night and happy Halloween, even if you hear this a week or so later. Good night, everybody. Good night. Hey, if you could do one thing for us, uh, now that that's out, 